Every year around Christmas and Easter, New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof publishes a column where he interviews a religious leader about their faith. Now usually, the results are pleasant if somewhat forgettable. Last Easter's was not forgettable. Kristof interviewed Serene Jones, who's the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York City. In playing the role of friendly skeptic, most of Kristof's questions focused on the parts of Christian belief he finds hardest to understand or just weirdest. As you can guess, the parts he's talking about are the resurrection and the virgin birth. When asked whether she believed in the virgin birth, Jones responded, quote, I find the virgin birth a bizarre claim that has nothing to do with Jesus' message. Now, whether Jones believes in the virgin birth or not is not super interesting to me. What was interesting was the way people responded to the interview, which ranged from Serene Jones is a heretic who should be burned at the stake to anyone who doesn't agree with Serene Jones is some kind of Neanderthal. If Jones had said she didn't believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I doubt anyone really would have cared. But the virgin birth gets our hackles up. We aren't quite sure what we're supposed to do with it. It feels hard to believe, but it also feels too important to just edit out of the creeds entirely. And part of our problem is that we often start from the wrong place and we think the virgin birth is trying to do something it's really not. One way we often misread it is by making it all about prophecies from the Hebrew Bible. In today's reading from Isaiah, the prophet proclaims that a young woman will have a child called Emmanuel. Young woman comes from the Hebrew word Alma, which many early editors translated as virgin. Whether that's a good translation is up for debate and beyond my knowledge of Hebrew, like most things. But you could think that the virgin birth is just Matthew connecting Jesus to all these Old Testament prophecies, just checking the boxes one by one. But Isaiah also says that the one called Emmanuel would like to eat curds and honey. And if all Matthew's doing is checking the boxes, well, why not mention that Jesus loves curds and honey like Isaiah said Emmanuel would? And well, isn't that interesting? Just something to think about. But he doesn't. Another more common and harmful way to misread the virgin birth is by trying to make it about sin and sex. And this is wrong, but there's a good reason why people think this. In the fourth century, St. Augustine, who was the most important writer of the first thousand years of the church, was trying to figure out his doctrine of original sin. And he thought if everyone has original sin, it must be because of some universal experience that everybody has. And at the time Augustine was alive, the common experience everyone had is that they were the product of sex. And so Augustine figured that, well, sex somehow passes sin on to the next generation. So what Augustine did that was so influential, for better or worse, worse, was he took the idea that sin was passed through sex, and he stuck it to Matthew's claim that Jesus was born of a virgin. And he said that Jesus had to have been born of a virgin so that Jesus could be born without sin. But... It's important to remember Matthew was writing his gospel centuries before Augustine's doing all this stuff in his head. So this is nowhere in his worldview. So if it's not about Jesus being sinless, 
if it's not about checking some Old Testament prophecies off, then why did Matthew include it? What's he trying to do? You could imagine not having any virgin birth. St. Mark did. Mark has no birth at all. Jesus shows up as a 32-year-old. So why would you include a virgin birth in your gospel? Well, for Matthew, the virgin birth is not about sex or sin or prophecies. It's about creation. It helps to remember here that Matthew is the most Jewish of the gospel writers. And at the heart of both of the Hebrew Bible's creation stories, stories Matthew and his community knows well, is a claim that God creates not out of compulsion or fear or pressure. God isn't responding to something when God creates. Creation is a gift. God creates out of freedom. That's very different than the way you and I live. Because we really don't live in freedom. We live in a world of cause and effect. We spend most of our days reacting to things other people have done or things we think they might do. We do things out of compulsion, out of duty, out of need. When we look at the world and try to make decisions about what it means to live faithfully and responsibly, we're never looking at all of the options. The range of choices we have has always been constrained by the people who've come before us and the people who live around us. And because those effects never go away, sometimes they get worse over time, we get stuck in cycles that repeat over and over and over again. Now sometimes those cycles are personal ones. We have family systems where the same events play out again and again and again. Traumatic events in our family affect us even if we weren't alive when they happen. Sometimes those cycles are civic ones. To take a super obvious example of this, if you fund your schools with property taxes, don't be surprised when wealthy neighborhoods have better schools to give wealthy kids the resources to get the kinds of jobs where they can afford homes in, wait for it, the same wealthy neighborhoods. And sometimes those cycles are global. Sarah Peck, who worked in the U.S. Embassy in Kabul gave an interview last week about the new documents from the war in Afghanistan that came out. And one of the things she talked about was how her office tolerated some amount of corruption to provide security to keep Afghan officials safe. But the more corruption they allowed, the more resentful the local population came, and the more security they needed, so the more corruption they had to put up with, which created a need for even more security, and eventually the whole thing spiraled out of control. In our families, in our communities, in the world, we are often not the ones making the first move or always responding to the world that we've inherited. So the virgin birth is Matthew's way of showing us that God is not constrained by those same cycles that we are. It shows us that God's capable of breaking through the things that we replay over and over and over again and bringing something new into being where there seems to be no possibility at all. So think back to that first creation story from the Hebrew Bible for a minute. God creates all that is in six days, and then does what on the seventh? Rests, yes. So often we read that, and we think, well, that's the end of the creation story. Creation is over, we got things wrapped up with a day to spare, God is super efficient, now we're moving on to other things. Now Matthew says something else. Because Matthew and Matthew's community know that on day number eight, God gets back to creating. 
God creates faith in Abraham and Sarah. God creates a people out of a group of slaves in Egypt. God creates a prophetic word to liberate the Israelites from their indifference. And then God creates a human who embodies the entirety of the divine life. And that act of creation is just like the first one. It's not out of force. It's not out of compulsion. It's out of freedom, both God and Mary's. The incarnation is not some patch that gets dropped off to fix a bug in the system. It's that constant pressure of God to be in our lives, breaking through in a radically new way. That's why the symbolism of Christians gathering for worship on Sundays is so important for us. The day after Sabbath, day number seven, was the eighth day. And on the eighth day, God gets back to creating. Instead of just going back through the same old cycles, going back to day one, God brings us into a new future. That's why many early Christians designed baptismal fonts with eight sides on them. Because when we live out the promises of our baptism, when we trust in God, we emerge from the same cycles that we get stuck in again and again and again. That's really what the virgin birth is all about. It's not about sin. It's not about sex. It's not about prophecies. It's about how God liberates us from the old cycles we replay over and over and brings us into new life. We can never really start over. We can always start new. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Invite the assembly to stand as we join the church around the world, confessing our faith using the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, 